life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life After That. I'm Jan Murray, your host. Today, we are welcoming Lee Durst. She is coming to us from Alberta, Canada, and will be sharing her journey along with that of her late husband, Michael. So, hi, Lee, and thank you for coming to Life After That. Hi. Can you you give us a... Oh, I'm so glad to have you. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's Um, okay. Could you please give us some background on you and Michael and baby, how long you guys were together and tell us a little bit about your life and maybe his work before he got sick with ALS and then, you know, lead into what led him to that diagnosis. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, we met when I was 16, he was 18, um, kind of he was out of high school, but I was still in high school, but high school sweethearts kind of thing. And, um, you know, we got married. I was 20 years old. Um, we have have two children um, and four grandchildren. Um, he was, when I met him, he was, I always said he reminded me of Tarzan. He was, you know, the big, strong kind of butterfly back. He was a very strong man, um, very tall, you know, six foot. Um, his hands were like big paws. We, we used to tell me had this big paws. And so in the early years, we, uh, he was a printer by trade. Um, he decided he didn't like that anymore. He, he wanted to do construction. So off he went and started doing construction and somehow he fell in love with doing concrete of all things, Mm. placing, finishing, you know, from the the flat work, from the base work, right up to the finished product. Um, He did driveways, steps, sidewalks, patio decks. And he did that for a lot of years and we had our own business. So he was very, um, very muscular, very strong. Um, but we had a bad experience with people not paying. And so he decided, okay, we're, we're not going to do this business anymore. We're going to, we're going to shut it down and he's going to go and be a truck driver. So he was driving truck for couple years and he would down here in Alberta a lot of people are involved in oil field um so he did oil field hauling uh he hauled the big tanks and then he went long haul and it was good for a while he was home every week to two weeks and then he got put on this run where he was gone for you know 28 days and home for two. Oh, well, wow. Yeah, that wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. He didn't like being away from his wife and his babies. So 
he decided he was going to leave that job and he went back into the oil field for a little bit and that just wasn't working for him. And he started doing some work for other guys in concrete. Well, lo and behold, by 2006, we opened another business. And that was in the time when uh, stamp pattern concrete was coming into style. And what was that again? Stamp pattern. Okay. You know, and it looks like he he used to do things. He's got, he used to have um, things like uh, calendar, the Mayan calendar. Oh, yeah. And I've seen actually where they stamped asphalt or concrete roads and made it look like brick and stuff like that before, too. Okay, that's interesting. So he he was known all over town. We uh, he did um, things like uh, house basement floors. He also did apartment room apartment floors, and so he would do that. We were we were huge by 2011. We were you know had 11 guys working for us. Wow. Um, yeah. Or 2000, sorry, not 2011. What am I talking about? By 2007, we, we just, we had 11 guys working for us and we were busy all the time. And unfortunately he was in a town an hour away from us and he fell. He fell from a mezzanine onto concrete below. Oh my goodness. He suffered a very serious brain trauma. Um, they, he said, they said he had hematobas on, on both sides of the brain, as well as inside the brain. Oh, wow. He had a four millimeter shift in the baseline of the brain. Um, he spent six weeks in Calgary. Now that's two and a half hours to the West of us. So I ended up living in Calgary for those six weeks. I'd stay there for a week, come home and take care of our kids make sure they were okay because they were 15 and 13. Mm-hmm. Then I'd head back to Calgary and, and run the business in between. Well, that had a long-term effect. Um, it, it, it affected his personality. It affected, fortunately for him, it didn't affect things like movement, but it affected his personality and his ability to deal with certain situations. Mm-hmm. That's not unusual, I don't think, with traumatic brain injury. Oh, it's not. It's not at all. So that was kind of, you know, we went through a lot for that, a lot for that. And of course, in in the end, he ended up inevitably, um, we ended up shutting down the business because he couldn't deal with the personal side of business, people side of business. And he was very proud and wouldn't let me take over that end of it completely unfortunately so we we closed it down but he did because the because of the brain trauma he was able to get what we call a short income for the severely handicapped and go on a disability pension because it did affect him in a lot of different ways sure you know any he'd done lots of other things to his body broken ribs broken collarbone, Mm. you know, all kinds of things. So his back was a mess in the eighties. He'd had a drill pipe dropped on his back Mm. and we didn't know, he didn't know that anything was wrong until years later when he had back problems, they had 
cut, he had broken two vertebrae. Oh, wow. But we didn't know the swelling when they did the uh, x-rays showed it was fine. Hmm. So he went for years like that. Wow. Of course, you know, you you don't get coverage from compensation or anything because he didn't go to the doctor enough. Hmm. So the back injury and tied in with the brain injury, he was able to collect that. We had filed a lawsuit against the company because they didn't provide the correct fall protection. Um, it took seven years. And in 2014, we are sorry, in 2014, we were able to settle. And so we were financially ahead. Okay. So he bought a Harley. We got a trailer. Mm-hmm. We did some traveling and life was good. You know, um, we did a lot of camping with our kids and our grandkids and we had a great time. We had lots I'm of glad fun. you had that time. I, I am very thankful for that. So I, he bought me a bike. We would ride together and you know, he started complaining in a 2018 about, I think it was his left hand or no, it was his right hand. It just wasn't as strong. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something's wrong. I said, I don't know. And he, he got neck injections and, and back injections for pain from the prior incidences. And so we said, well, maybe they hit something and maybe it'll just kind of get better. And then Easter of 2018, we were at my daughter's house and he had had a couple drinks. Mm-hmm. He sounded like he drank a bottle. Oh, slurring. Yeah. My son-in-law was actually very upset with me that night saying like, how can you let him drive home? I said, he's fine. I don't know what's wrong. This is, I know he's only had two drinks. Right. Right. I know that. So we kind of let that go, but I noticed it on a couple more occasions. So I phoned his doctor and I said, I don't know what's going on, but he's having problems with the right hand numbness. I said, he has a couple drinks. He sounds like he's had a bottle. Like, is he having a stroke? Mm -hmm. So they sent us to our emergency department for x-rays. And I, I think they did a CAT scan. Yeah, a CAT scan. Mm-hmm. this doctor who looked like he was about 12 <laughs> I'm I I kid you not and he comes out after my husband's had this ultra or this uh cat scan and they said to he said to us well Mr. Durst he said there's nothing on the cat scan he said so in my professional opinion you have carpal tunnel syndrome they told my husband the same thing in the beginning. Only it was his left hand instead of his right hand. Wow. Well, I I got really upset, called the doctor Skippy. I said, okay, Skippy, we're going to go to a real doctor now. So we went back to his doctor. The, this doctor that he's had has been a, a godsend. And 
he sent us, he was a pain management specialist is what he was. And so he sent us to our family doctor who in turn put my husband in the hospital here. She said, I have a few ideas of what this could be, but I need you in the hospital to do some tests. And of course my husband's like, oh, really? Do I have to? My, my doctor is not an assertive lady. She's very tiny and she just growled at him really and said, you need to get in the hospital. She said, if this is a muscular, a neuromuscular disorder, it's something that could come very quick and we need to know. She said, I'm not playing games. And that was the first time we, we'd had any kind of inkling that this could be more mm-hmm. just, you know, a nerve or something. Well, he had already had so many things happen to him. There was no reason for something rare or supposedly rare like ALS would come in your mind. Yep, exactly. So, you know, but as soon as she said that, that's exactly what crossed my mind. Because to be fair, um, the man who is my children's godfather died from ALS. We knew. And a woman that lives in the city I hung around with her children. She had passed a bailus. Okay. Kind of had an idea of what that was. And so as soon as she said the neuromuscular disorder, that's exactly just what went into my head. Sure. And I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God. So they went to the hospital. They ran a bunch of tests because I know I did a little research and they said things like um, advanced diabetes can mimic some of the symptoms uh west nile can mimic some of the systems there's right symptoms so there's a number of other Lyme things disease like, all these different yeah. things that can mimic it yeah yeah so they had to rule those out so they had ruled those all out unfortunately and the doctor we had here uh the neurologist um they got us a test in Lethbridge now that's another hour and some southwest Mm. it's the electro one where they stick the electro uh eng the emg thing yeah yeah where they stick the needles and then they charge them with the electricity yeah (laughs) yes so they went and did that in Lethbridge um on in June, I had had a conference in Ottawa. And this was all happening in May to the beginning of June. Mm-hmm. And I said, like, I can cancel my conference. I won't go. Um, he's like, no, you, you've worked hard to get this far. You go to Ottawa. Now that's clear cost cross country and it's our capital. Yeah, I'd never been. He's like, no, you worked really hard. You go to this conference. Well, his birthday was the 12th. I left the day after his birthday or two days after his birthday. Anyway, I'm in the conference. He phones me. He said, they're telling me I have ALS. So here I am clear across the country 
and just sick. So I just couldn't wait to get home to see him. So right. when we got home from Ottawa, he was there waiting. And we came home, we talked and he didn't, I don't think he really believed it. Um, I think he thought they were just telling Wrong. a story. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think they were just telling a story. And, and so I said, well, he said, they are going to call me. We have to go to Calgary again. That's two and a half hours Northwest of us. Yeah. They have an amazing new hospital there and there they run an ALS clinic. So I said, okay. So again, they did, when we got there, we got checked in. They did that electro test. Electromagnet, again. Yeah. yeah. EMG. Yeah. And the doctor there just looked at him and said, I'm really sorry to tell you. And that was in August. He said, I'm really sorry to tell you. He said, you have ALS. And we were just, wow. Yeah, because nobody can go through an EMG. <laughs> nobody can have a clean EMG if they ha- actually have ALS. If you have an EMG and it's done correctly and it comes yeah. out clean, chances are you don't have ALS. But if it's right. done correctly and it's what they say dirty, a dirty EMG, it's just almost a given that that's exactly what it is. My husband's yeah. first one, uh, was a hometown neurologist doing it and he did not have him engage his muscles at all when he was doing the electric part okay. and, he, and he said well I don't think this is ALS even though my husband had two brothers at the time also with ALS they're familial but oh. they don't know they don't know what gene mutation it is it's none of the ones we know about so right. I had I drove my husband to Nashville Tennessee it's about six hours from where we were living at the time uh, to an ALS clinic and they ran it there. And so when they stuck the needles in, they had him engage those muscles. And right. after that, the, there was two neurologists. They're like, we're sorry, but you have yeah. ALS. So yeah. Well, with him, they were really good. I, I sat in the room while they did it. I did too. And I don't know if they did your husband like they did mine, but they ran a needle up through the underside of his chin, up through his tongue. I thought I was going to throw up when they did that. And he looked like he was about to, and he never cried. You know, my husband was tough and everything, but he looked at me like, oh my gosh, what are they doing to me? I couldn't believe what they were doing. And I just, I was like, what? Whoa. Yeah. I know. The first, the first test, they didn't go up underneath. Mm-hmm. By the, the time the, they were, the local one didn't do it either. Only at only at Vanderbilt University is where they did that part. Yeah, and same. They only did it at the ALS clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy in Lethbridge that did the first round of testing, I think he was pretty sure after because he he did he went through clench, move your fist, move mm-hmm. this, do that, and I think when he had gotten to the point, he said. I'm not going to do underneath the chin, he said. And I thought he didn't tell us why, but I think he knew at that point that this was it. And so they scheduled us for the ALS clinic after they did the, they went and took us and introduced us to everybody in the clinic. Um, All I can say is, shout out to all of them there yeah we love their clinic oh 
amazing people, yeah. amazing people. My husband was always this gruff, rough old man, you know, um, what was in his mind usually came out of his mouth, <laughs> even when he couldn't speak and he was using his, his, as we called it, Toby. Uh-huh. Um, we had a Toby, but my husband's eyes were affected by the disease and never could use it. Oh, sadly, his were not. So he still spoke. <laughs> but he, you know, whatever was in his mind came out of his mouth I or Toby it. or whatever, right? I love it. Yeah. So he was, he was a bit of a cantankerous old man, but I think that was a benefit to him because he was just, it was discovered that he had bulbar ALS. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, he managed for two and a half years. Wow. And um, I think he may have gone on for a while more yet. Um, but we got to a point, we had caregivers come in every day. Mm-hmm. And that was only Monday to Friday. And they come in 9 to 4.30. So for the first hour in the morning, he would just be in bed. Then they'd come in at nine, get him up, get him dressed and all of that. And then at 4.30, I would come home and I would take care of the rest. Um, And then Saturdays and Sundays were me. Yeah, the weekends were always tough. We were home and I think healthcare in Canada is way different than it is here. We were... It, we didn't have, once he had to leave his job, we didn't have health care. So it was a struggle. And once I got him on our social security system, he got Medicaid. And right. we also were able to get him approved for hospice. He was on hospice seven years, literally. Oh, um, wow. But they sent someone out to our house every single day uh, to do, because he had fallen within that first year and he couldn't uh-huh. walk anymore. And they came out every day to do his bath and get him dressed. And then it was just me. And I had a 14, 15 year old daughter still at home who helped as best she could. Um, And then the weekends, no one came and the weekends were tough. And I, I, my hat's off to all of these men and women who take care of a spouse or whoever, and they do it alone with no assistance. I don't know how they do it because it nearly it nearly killed me physically, mentally, Mm -hmm. emotionally. It was exhausting. And, um, I did start having health problems as well, but it, I don't know. It, it, it was tough financially and otherwise, but yeah, you're talking that daily care. And I think, uh, the other guest I had from Canada, she talked about that Canada really had some really great programs that really helped them out. It was yours. Did you have to pay or did your government help no, you? To- my government paid it. That's fabulous. I yeah. I was allotted X amount of dollars per month. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and all our supplies, like our wheelchair, our, uh, all his speaking devices, all everything that he needed braces, uh, for his hands and his wrists. Um, all of that stuff was covered. They That's got amazing. A, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> well, the only reason is it's not our health system that does it with the um, supplies that you need, with the apparatuses and whatever. 
That is the ALS Society. Mm-hmm. Some of it. Um, I got him a uh, bought him a chair where it's a power chair. Yeah, those and, 50, 60, 70,000 dollar ones, that's what they cost down here. Oh no, yeah, that was supplied. Um, wow, that's amazing. ALS, yes, the ALS society does that. And what happens is you use it until you can no longer use it. Okay. And then it goes back. And then they refurbish it basically and get it ready for the next person. That's incredible. It is. And it's all the ALS society is all on donation all fundraising. So it, when he first, when he first really lost his voice, he was very resistant to any speaking aids. He could still move his feet because of course his upper body is what went first. Mm -hmm. And so he refused to get the Toby and he had a little board where he'd point with his toes my husband used it. his finger, his one hand that worked well to point to a letter board. Yeah. That's how he communicated. It drove me crazy. I'm not a great speller and I'm looking down at your feet. This is not a normal and it's upside <laughs> down. So this is not normal, right? Right. Nothing's and, normal about ALS anyway. No, it isn't that the truth. But so I finally, you know, got upset and, and we did and eventually get things working with the Toby and he just, it, he's was old fashioned. You know, if I can't do it this way, then we're not going to do it at all. Right. And like you said, he didn't want to stop walking. Right. Because his legs were still good. That's good. But the problem is his arms didn't work. Right. And so when your arms don't work and you fall, you fall. Exactly right. And even, yeah. even if their arms work, because my husband's arms still worked when he fell that time. He still don't work at the same speed. No, nope. can't get him up quick enough. And uh, yeah. yeah, he landed on his shoulder and busted it. And by the time we well, got him over that, ALS took over and he never walked again. So yeah, that was like my husband. He, I, on a Saturday, I needed to go to the store. I said to him, I've seen him fall several times prior to that like he'd just be walking and all of a sudden he'd start falling and he'd fall over on the couch yeah the you know their balance is off I mean the falls Mm -hmm. are so dangerous they're so dangerous well I said to him I said I I, the one Saturday I said I'm gonna go to the store this one is is a really difficult story because it was it was horrendous um I'm gonna go to the store and I'm gonna get stuff for supper I will be one hour. I said, please do not move. Just stay there. I will help you get whatever it is you need when I get home. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was gone exactly one hour. I opened the door and we lived in a four level split. Mm -hmm. And we had his chair in the dining area going downstairs. I opened the door and it's clear shot into the kitchen dining area. There he is laying on the floor in a massive pool of blood. Oh dear. He opened his eyes. His, he was so covered in blood that his eyes just stuck out because they were a very vibrant blue. 
I'm guessing he hit his head because that's a lot of blood he, when he hit yeah, your head. He did. He ended up taking 10 staples because the corner bead in, in these houses are metal. And he hit the corner bead. Oh, How dear. he didn't fall down the stairs. The only thing I think that saved him from falling down the stairs is his chairlift was there. Hmm. Um, I think if the stairwell would have been open, he would have gone down the stairs. Mm-mm-mm. I instantly opened the door. I screamed. My neighbors heard and they came running. In the meantime, I was on the phone with 911 and he was laying with his neck on the transition part from going from hardwood to tile. Mm-hmm. And the nurse on the people on 911 are saying put pressure on it. So I'm putting pressure on it, but I was choking him on the transitional part. Oh, dear. So he's getting upset. So we took him to the hospital. The ambulance came. They put 10 staples in. And they said, given his condition, we're just, we just looked over to see if he was hurt anywhere else, if there was anything broken. He said, this could have been a heart thing. It could have been several things aside from balance. He said, but given the condition, we're not going to really look into it Mm -hmm. because basically he's dying. So it doesn't matter. We're going to just let it be. Mm -hmm. I was really upset at that attitude. And I thought, but what if I take him home and it was a heart attack and he dies when I get him home? That's right. You know, I was really panicked for a while. And then I thought, no, he fell because. He lost his balance. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all. And as as he came home, they didn't even clean him at our hospital. Wow. Like he was covered in blood still. That's awful. It took me 45 minutes to get him clean because mm. it was all dried. And my mm. sister-in-law was wonderful. She came in and cleaned the floors, but the blood was pouring so bad it, it went in the top of the step like it was separated a little bit mm-hmm. and it was pouring onto my deep freeze and splattering on the wall oh wow That's so that was. looked horrible I know oh it was terrible but so we got him home and I said to him okay now we have to use a wheelchair mm-hmm. you have no choice I cannot trust to leave if you're not in that chair right excuse me so they brought him a wheelchair and they also supplied a lift out front to get because of course he had to come upstairs Mm -hmm. to come in and so they had supplied a lift so and they built a little kind of runway to get to the lift and get you know so he had freedom he would sit in the front yard with our caregivers every day when I came home from work he would be out on the, you know, on the front deck or on the front driveway and they're, you know, chitting and chitting, chatting and the neighbors were all over. And um, so it was going good. You know, it was getting more and more difficult for me, which people didn't realize because, mm-hmm. you know, what am I going to say? And so because we lived in a four level split, we had friends. I was we were talking about bathroom things. And I said, you know, all I'd like to do is move our little small bathroom downstairs and build a big shower for him to get in and out of. Yes. Mm-hmm. Our friends had it built. That's amazing. I know we have, we had some, we have 
some very amazing friends. That's great. And so we put the hospital bed down there and his TV and his lift chair. And he had the shower and bathroom right there. Good. But it did get to a point where, like, like I said, he was six foot, 245 pounds of solid muscle. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to cart this around. Now I'm five, three and a little chubby, but I'm not a very big girl uh, height wise. So I was carting him and taking him to the shower, even when we had staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept saying to me, I'm not I'm not ready for them to shower me. Yeah, my husband wasn't either. But I said, oh, well, you'll get you'll yeah. adjust. And it was weird for me too. the first several oh. times. It was so strange knowing there was a strange woman in there giving my husband a bath. But I was honestly, I, at the, at, I was so grateful for it. Yeah. At that point that I had lesser, a hard time than him, but they were so great though. Cause they would flirt with him and, yeah. and just make him happy. And he felt so clean and so good when they, he finally realized, Hey, you know, this is actually a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's hard giving up that I, I, totally understand that and my husband did not lose his weight he was he was like 210 at death he he held on to his weight he was what 511 right 210 and he never he never lost that weight where his brothers they they look like walking skeletons they did lose their weight but my husband didn't and I you know I messed up my back uh during those caregiving years I sure did Mm -hmm. yeah and I I I said to him, you know, we're going to have to, we had a little lady that came in with the agency that we had used and she forced him for her to shower him. And he was really uncomfortable with that. So I said to her, no more. Um, He is obviously not ready for that. Yeah. I have to work him into this. So then he was good for a while because I was still showering him. And finally, I said one day when I was trying to get him in the shower, I said, I, I'd come out of the shower soaking wet. And yeah. I said to him, we've got to, you've got to let the girls do this. Yeah. I said, I didn't take any courses on this. I said, there are specific ways to do things where I won't get hurt. Right. And I don't know those ways. So that in turn, you know, I'm going to hurt myself. And I'm going to hurt you. Yep. Oh, fine. So he finally agreed. And so every couple of days they were showering him or whenever he wanted. And I came home one day after work. And yes, I was very uncomfortable at first. It was, you know, and so was he. And But this had been going on for a couple months. And I, I came in and I had to talk to the caregiver. And so she's got him in the shower. And so we're standing there talking. And he gets out of the shower and he's like, well, how often is it a guy has the other woman, another woman showering him and his wife comes in and she stands and has a conversation (laughs) kind of laughing. And I said, and I pay for it. Well, she turned beat red and laughed, you know, (laughs) because we had to make jokes about things. Yeah, we did too. We laughed at everything, even the really yucky, nasty biological situations that occurred that we don't talk about even on this show we I mean we allude to the things that we had to do as wives that we never thought we would ever have to do and 
Uh, If people don't realize when we say we had to do everything, we mean everything. Everything. And we had to joke and, you know, there wasn't always control of some of those things. And we could, you know, I bet you went through it too, could have him all nice and clean. And there we go again, all over us too. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then we, when he, when he, he got the feeding tube quite early. Oh. because of the ball bar he was losing it that that's another thing that we noticed one of the symptoms was he choke oh my husband choked all the time he didn't have the ball bar but he had violent chokes early on he yeah. let's see he he made it seven years after diagnosis and i think he had a feeding tube for half that time at least three and a half of those years uh, no he lost his ability to really swallow well very quickly um in fact he was diagnosed in June of 2018. We went to on a little holiday with my grandkids and my daughter and he choked at my sister's and isn't that the most frightening thing when they choke? I still well, have PTSD yeah. from that. If I hear somebody coughing weird, yeah. like in a restaurant or something, it just sends me back. Me too. I, I really have a hard time. I've always had a hard time with people choking. And so yeah. when it started happening to him, I'm like, Oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Actually, at one point he was sitting in his wheelchair choking. And of course you can't do the Heimlich around the wheelchair. Well, even so the Heimlich didn't work a couple of times for us. It was just, there yeah. were so much of that gunk, that yeah. stuff. And I didn't know what to do. So I, of all things, just punched him in the stomach. <laughs> so I'm sure it looked really, really bad. But I knew if I could get, you know, push that diaphragm in, maybe that would help. And he looks at me after it's done. And he said, why did you do that? Well, <laughs> You're you were- trying to save his life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He said, I couldn't reach around. I had to. And he goes, no, you didn't. I was fine. And I said, no, no, you, no, weren't. you weren't fine. You were turning blue and choking, man. <laughs> yeah. Your, your, his lips were literally blue. Yeah. Mine was, his was like that. And I call, I had to call the ambulance a couple of times and yeah. Oh uh, gosh. Yeah. And I, I mean, our hospital here is quite a disgrace. I'm not, uh, I'm not very happy with the hospital here mm-hmm. um, because he had the feeding tube and it was cleaned regularly. Like you're supposed to, you did, we did all that we had to do. And the caretaker noticed it was very, very red and it almost felt like there was a lump in it. Mm-hmm. So we went to the hospital. Now, it's not bad enough. This She took him up about three o'clock in the afternoon. We left at 11 o'clock that night with still no result. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Come back in the morning. We'll get an ultrasound or a CT or whatever it was. And we went back in the morning. They had no record of what they were supposed to do. Oh, wow. So I am freaking out. So... They're running fluids through just in case they're going to do this. And then they run this and then they, you know, but nobody had a set time or anything for any, you know, kind of ultrasound or CAT scan or anything. Hmm. So we went up at 830 in the morning, I believe it was. And by one o'clock, they still hadn't done anything. Oh, good grief. Well, I started losing my marbles a little. 
And so finally they did this CAT scan and this little internist, or before they had done the CAT scan, this little internist, she came in and she started talking like we were idiots. And I got very angry and very upset. And I spoke to her very aggressively. And because if I don't speak for my husband, who's going to? Right, exactly. You know, and so she left the room. We went and got the CAT scan done. They sent back this big, huge male nurse with tattoos everywhere saying, nope, there's nothing wrong. Take them home. Okay, fine. So a week later, whatever it was ruptured, there was an infected, like a, a cyst or something in there. Mm-hmm. So I asked them who the internist was that was on call. And they told me it was this woman. I said, no, we'll leave. I will drive to the next town over and go to their little squat hospital. Mm-hmm. and be treated there. I said, I will not have her in here. I want Dr. Nor. Mm-hmm. So this other doctor, he's been around for a long time here. He came in. He took care of him. He was wonderful. He ended up putting in. Uh, oh, now I don't remember the the terminology for it but the button you don't have it's a button you don't have to change it yeah I know what you're talking about but I don't know what you call I don't know what the medical term is yeah so they he changed it out and put that in and he came to our house and did it we didn't even have to go to the emergency room or the doctor he dealt with a lot of the uh, developmentally disabled people in town and he understands you did it it's not something simple, especially in the wintertime, to pack someone up and drag them somewhere and then unpack them, take them in, get it done, have to pack them up again. Especially an ALS patient that's in a motor yeah. wheelchair that has limited yep. mobility and has specific needs that the general medical personnel literally don't understand. We ran yeah. into issues as well. Oh, yeah. So we went on till. Finally, about, well, the end of February, into February, we're really struggling. I was struggling. And I said to him, I, you know, even the girls that were coming in to look after him were struggling. It was getting harder. We didn't have the equipment that, you know, that a hospital or a care facility has. Right. So we had to make that decision. Um, Do we want to hurt him? Or do we want him cared for 24-7? Right. Um, I had baby monitors set up and all of that. But still, if something happens, I'm calling the hospital. I can't do anything anymore. Right. We were like that. We got to the point where I, I actually put my husband in. We call it a nursing home. It was a health and rehab. I didn't have a choice. Um, yeah. Didn't have a choice. Well, and that's what I said. I, I, I don't have a choice. I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't lift anymore. I can't, you know, and even the caregiver said, no, he's getting harder to transfer right. to the upstairs. Um, he's going to, what, what, you know, end up laying on the bed downstairs, never seeing outside. Right. I said, we can't, we can't do this. So they found us placement. Um, they lined that all up. Uh, we have with home care. And 
we got him moved in. He was very excited actually. Cause he thought, you know, um, it's all one floor. He can move around, buzz around and COVID hit. Oh no. Yeah. He moved in on the fourth by the 21st of March or whatever it was. The world shut down. Oh, wow. And unfortunately he was in a terrible home. Um, they were talking about the first incident was only a few days in and they were talking about his genitalia in the hallway. (gasps) Yeah. Loud enough for him to hear. He heard them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I made that complaint and this woman, the manager, she was more than apologetic and we're going to take care of this and yada, yada, yada. And so it started that there was more incidences little things that were happening and of course I can't get in there and here in in Alberta it depended on the home and how they perceived the rules to be Mm -hmm. we had a, a a rule saying you know you need uh your one main steady contact and most homes would let that contact come in that one one or you were some cases allowed to, and they could come and see you. But before they had closed down, my oldest daughter, he, they decided they needed to give him morphine. Well, that plays with your bowels. Yeah, And he was in so much pain. So they ended up giving him a suppository, putting a diaper on him and putting him into bed. My daughter came in the next morning at 11 o'clock. He he was still laying in that fed diaper. He had not been out of bed. He'd been in bed since nine o'clock the previous night. Uh, No one had gone in there. Oh, my Lord. In urine and feces. So there's my next complaint, because that was pretty serious. Uh, there was, and I told them he likes to be out of bed and dressed by nine. Yeah. Uh, very rarely they, you know, while we could go in there at 11 o'clock was pretty much the earliest they get him up. So because I made so many rumblings, I was not allowed to see him. I could make an appointment. What? Yeah. I could make an appointment to see him. You're his wife. What do you mean? Yeah. I could only go see him if I made this appointment. Well, I work Monday to Friday, 8 to 4.30. I need evenings. Well, we only have Tuesday evenings. So that's fine. Put me on the list. Oh, they're full. It's full. Okay. Well, what about next Tuesday? Well, we haven't started filling that one yet. Give us a call tomorrow. And they can get away with doing that? Yeah, they did. Yeah. (gasps) And so the last straw was in July of 28. So this went through 2020. Yeah, because I put him, we, he had to go in in 28, 19 when the pandemic hit. He was, oh no, it was 2020. 2020s when, we when pandemic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so 2020. So that went on until July. And I got a text because he could still text me through his Toby and they had left him in the bathroom 
in the sling of a lift <gasps> on the toilet for two and a half hours. Oh my Lord. Yeah. Absolutely. No way to communicate. Um, nothing. And they went through shift change and still they managed to forget him. I don't understand. I don't either. So when I got the text, I just left work. I went flaming over there. I was so upset. So I rang the doorbell to try and get in. I had to do that three times before anybody came to the door. This little nurse, and I could see the manager was in her office because there was a window directly across from her office and I could see her. Mm -hmm. And the door opened and this little nurse's aide comes in and says, you know, what, uh, what can I do to help you? I just looked at her and I said, I'm Mike's wife. Oh, so the manager comes out and she's like, well, my staff. And I said, I don't care what your staff says. And I didn't put it that politely. Yeah, probably would not have been nice at all. (laughs) No, a few F-bombs were dropped in there. I'm sure. She actually ended up calling the police on me. Um, I didn't. I said, well, let me file a counter report. Well. On abuse (laughs) of my husband. (laughs) Exactly. So. When the police called me, it was the next day and I lost my mind with this police officer and I was telling him everything that went on. And he said, I am so sorry I had to make this phone call. He said, that's unreal. And so I hung up with him. I phoned home care. I said, either you find a home that's suitable or I will bring him home and he will live out his days in my living room. Mm -hmm. I really don't care. I will figure it out. Mm -hmm. So finally they got us into another home in August and it was the home that his mom was in after she had had a stroke. And it's one of the newer homes that we have in the city. Mm -hmm. And I knew a few people that worked there. That always helps. Absolutely. And although they worked on separate floors, they would come and see him on a regular to mm-hmm. tell me everything that's going on and to make sure that he was okay. Good. And he was losing his ability to control his head by that point. And that's oh, yeah, how my husband did too. Yeah. Well, and that's how he would use his wheelchair was with his head. And mm-hmm. once he lost that ability, of course they took away the controls. It Yeah. You know, it had to be driven by. Can't be safely control. operated. They won't let them do it anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So they took that away. And that's when his whole drive left. Yes. And so we had some heavy discussions. And in Canada, we can do what is called made medical assistant dying. Okay. I didn't know you guys had that there. Yes, we do. It's a process. You have to go through two doctor interviews. They review your file. They review what the doctors say. And fortunately, one of the doctors that did the, the assessment was his pain management specialist who, like I said, he's been with him since way back. Okay. And it was the only doctor that he would trust, my husband would trust, after he had his brain injury. 
And so doc, the doctor said, you know, like, I absolutely agree with what you want to do. And he said, but I'm asking that you allow me the honor to do this for you. Mm-hmm. He said, we have been not just doctor patient, but we're friends. Mm-hmm. And he said, I would be honored. So we got the, he got the okay. Um, he got approval that yes, he could. So it was very surreal making those arrangements. I'm sure. Uh, because I had to do it. I had to make the arrangements because he couldn't talk anymore. And so I phoned the number on how to get it set up. And this woman is explaining how it works. Well, let me ask you a question real quick, because I know yeah. in some states uh, down here in the U.S. that do have medically assisted um, dying, that the person has to administer the medication or whatever to themselves, that your husband wouldn't have been able to do that. So how does your program work there? Our program works here like you have to be able to say yes or show that you are able to say yes. Mm-hmm. And it has to be administered by a doctor. Okay. Um, so down so, here, the person has to do it, but up yeah. there, your doctor can do it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All he has to be able to do is say yes in some form. Okay. So of course, you know, and so, um, we knew it was coming. So they allowed us at the home to put anybody on the list. He had a list of about a hundred people that he wanted to and, see. Yeah. As long as we could coordinate times and when they came. So there was never any more than two or three in the t- at the time in there. Uh, he was able to visit and say goodbye to everybody. Um, so it's really weird knowing the exact time and the exact day someone is going to pass. Yeah, I'm not sure how I would. Although when we made the decision to stop treatment for my husband, we basically were making that same decision. and. Yeah. At the end, he was convulsing and I oh. uh, had been for hours and hours and hours. And the only thing that had helped had been a, a little small amount of fentanyl that they gave him in one tiny vein he had. Yeah. And I begged the doctor to give him more because that's what had helped. But we had let them put a central IV in his neck over the course of that day. Never occurred to me if they did the fentanyl right there that it was going to have a different effect. So after several hours, it was me that made that call. She said, are you sure? I said, yes. I mean, we have to stop this. This is awful. And it probably wasn't five seconds that she put that tiny amount of fentanyl in that artery and he he was gone. So I literally had to seek out some counseling after that because I felt like I killed him, (laughs) even though I know he was he was about to die anyway. But yeah, I felt like it was me that actually made that decision. And I bet you're, you felt probably like that too, a little bit. In some ways. Absolutely. I I still go over it. Um, because we had discussed this early on, um, that he said, you know, once I get to the point where I can't wipe my own butt, he said, I want to go. But that happened really early on. I was going to say, but that happened way sooner because I know it did with mine. (laughs) That happened years before the end. Yeah. Yeah. And because it's bulbar, of course, that's the first symptoms is the upper part. 
Yes, not exactly. the lower part. Right. So, you know, that changed. And then, you know, we had the grandkids. We have the, you know, he didn't, he wasn't ready to go. And then after that stint in, in the one home, uh, like we, we used to sneak outside. He used to come outside and we'd sit in the parking lot. He'd sit at one end of the parking lot. I'd sit at the other, no contact. Right. And we'd visit until someone ratted us out. Mm -hmm. Then we got in trouble, you know? So once they moved him, I was able to go in and visit. So I went in quite often. And the night before he passed, I was allowed to stay. I spent the night with him. And once everybody had gone, I mean, staff were coming in at a constant flow, saying their goodbyes to him. I thought it was amazing. We've he'd only been that there. Too. <laughs> yeah, he'd only been there a few months, but he made a huge impact. Yeah. And so we're there in the quiet. It's just him and I. And he looked at me and he said, I don't have to do this. I can, I can say no. And I thought this, you're putting me in a horrible position. All right. A very horrible position because if I say no, go, go through with it. Well, you want me to die. Right. Or no, I want you to stay. And then another couple of months down the road, as he gets worse, it's like, oh, it's your fault. I'm here now. You yeah, know, that's a bad place to be in right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very, very bad position. So I thought about it for a minute and I just, I looked at him and I said, I love you. And no matter what you decide, whether it's decide to stay or decide to go, I will back you in that decision. There you go. Because I cannot make that decision for you. That's right. And he said, okay, I'm going to follow through. And I said, okay. And so we just kind of, I just, I didn't know what to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he was looking for a yes or a no, but I couldn't give them that. I couldn't give him that. Well, it sounds like y'all had the kind of relationship like my husband and I did in that he didn't really want to leave you. Yeah. And it was hard for him to leave you, but he was also really tired of the situation Yes. And I think that's what happened with my husband. My husband, when I look back at Facebook memories that come up for the months leading to his death, I see how bad he looked and how bad things were getting. And I see all the times I posted more prayers, please. He's got another infection. Oh, no, we're back at the hospital. More prayers, more, you know, things. And, you know, because ultimately what happened, he just kept having one infection after the other. And you know, the kids and I said, look, you don't have to keep fighting this. If you, if you want to let nature's like take its course, you know, we, we're going to support you. We didn't want him to go. He was still such a huge part of our life and full of life. And, but, um, you know, he finally just with tears running down his face motioned that he was ready to just not do it. And then the nurses told me they're like, well, you know, he's going to become septic. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's septic. I said, well, I was septic nearly died years ago. So I do understand something about sepsis, but 
I didn't know what a sepsis death looked like. And it was really rough and it was really, really bad. And that haunted has haunted me the whole time yeah. since he's been gone. I've pretty much come to a point of acceptance, but I've questioned his decision. And I thought, gosh, he knew I was exhausted. The kids were exhausted. Did he make that decision because of us? Or did he make that decision because he was really ready to let go? Is that why he was convulsing and seizing because he was fighting hard not to let go? I've had so many questions about all the decisions we made those last five days of his life. And ultimately, until I get to go where he is, I'm not going to have those answers. <laughs> I have no idea. Exactly. exactly. And and that's the thing. I mean, you go through this and it's like, I'm sure he felt at some points that because I would lose patience. Because I'm tired. I'm I'm working full time. I'm trying to do all these things and and you know, not taking time for me. And, you know, and then when he went into the home, of course, I couldn't see him as often, but I'd go to his window. And and then when he by the time he had hit the other home and other people were allowed to see him, it's like I just kind of backed away a little. Yeah. Because I needed for my sanity some time away and then but he noticed that immediately i i actually went through that as well and then i had to deal with that guilt did you have I the had guilt yeah i had a yep. lot of guilt i was like oh wow all the times that i said i'm just too tired i'm gonna go home after yep. a 10 12 hour day you know and i yep. but i did what i did i think because i was trying to survive too yes. i was just trying to survive and i was tired and i went i was so tired of it but I wasn't tired of him. I was tired of ALS. I was tired of everything that it had stolen from us. Exactly. You know, and I know you're probably thinking, yep, that's me. I mean, yeah. but you do, you question every decision and it, yeah. man. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think of that, you know, like quite often that, you know, maybe I should have said, no, I don't want you to go or, you know, because then he would have understood that I do love you, but you know, and I know he didn't, I know his love was unwavering. I know, know that. I just think when you're knee deep in that stuff, you think differently. You do. We're, well, we're, hey, during that time, we were different people than we were before um, we were hit with it. And we are certainly different people now. Oh, amazingly different. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, Truly, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss that man, and I don't. Same. You know, I wish he was here. Join us in two weeks when Lee continues her story about her life with Michael, her beloved husband, and she talks a little bit more about life since Michael passed away from ALS.